I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is not as simple as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened up so many more doors. The show is called The The Deal. Deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Welcome back, Iowa fans, to another edition of the Hawkeye History Podcast. Uh, appreciate you joining us as always, and happy to be joined today uh, by former Iowa basketball player and current uh, Big Ten analyst, Jess Settles. How you doing, Jeff? Rob, I'm doing great, buddy. I'm I'm a little tired. I, I farm with my dad down here around Winfield, South Iowa City, and We've been grinding, you know, early to late, and we just haven't had any rainouts. We've been missing these rains, so I'm, I'm on fumes. I got a little break here, and I'm it's glad to uh, I'm glad to catch up with you. Well, I appreciate you taking time out of uh, the busy schedule to join us. And uh, how are things going? I mean, obviously things are crazy around this country right now with the pandemic, and uh, I guess as farmers, you guys are pretty much quarantined a lot, a lot anyway. So has, has a lot changed for you, or is it pretty much business as usual? You know what? Yeah, we're in that unique situation where we have open spaces and we're not around a lot of people anyway when we're putting the crops in. So things haven't changed near as much for us as as most people. Um, I've got my I brought my wife, Joanna, and our three daughters to my mom and dad's house here in Winfield to the farm. So we're quarantined here so my dad and I can can put in the crops. So that's been a little unique. But you know, just like everybody else, just trying to use wisdom, um, not get too close to people when we're picking up the seed or, or going through town and things like that. But for the most part, as far as the work schedule goes, it's, uh, it's up early, uh, try to uh, get these crops planted. This is our window, like, like every farmer does. And um, it's one of those times where you kind of feel fortunate you're out in the country where you have open spaces. What's it been like for Matt? You mentioned your wife and kids. It's probably most different for them. How's it been? I know I have three kids at home and trying to homeschool and do things like that. What's it been like for them? It's been, you know, what I, I there are two sides to it. I, for us, it's really been a blessing. It's so nice to have them at home, uh, to be able to play catch, to be outside, to ride the four wheeler. Uh, to be around my wife all the time. It, so it's really been a blessing. And I, I think that's the case for a lot of families. Uh, maybe people have been grinding too much and you just, 
you know, life begins to get away from you a little bit. That part of it's been wonderful. They, my wife is a school teacher and our girls, they've been on online school since this thing took place. And it's been pretty intense to be honest with you. So they wake up with a pretty uh, loaded schedule and, um, and get after it. And then I'm gone, you know, most of the day back and forth, some uh, in between fields. Uh, but overall for us, um, it's been it's been a good thing, Rob. How about how about you? I mean, it's been nice to have your kids at home, hasn't it? Yeah, it's um, it is nice. Um, my wife takes a different time to compare more of the homeschooling load than I do, and God bless her for that. But uh, yeah, right. you, man, it's really nice. I've got a freshman in high school, a seventh grader, uh, and a third grader, and um, you know, it's usually as you know everybody going their own separate ways to a practice or a band rehearsal or something like that. And now everybody's kind of, you know, we're doing puzzles together and playing games together and doing things, you know, shooting hoops in the, in the driveway, things like that. So yeah, I agree with you. I think there's something to be said for, for the, the extra family time during this time. Yeah. It's, it's, it's remarkable. I, I mean, you, you mentioned the puzzles, the games, card games. I mean, just things that people just, so many people have put those to the side. And, and like you said, if you're running around going to games and events and, and those things have just been put on hold. And I, even, even when I was growing up, I never was got caught up in the AAU uh, scene. I never was on these traveling teams. My mom and dad just wouldn't let me. They actually gave me two camps a year that I could attend. So we, you know, that didn't turn out too badly for me as far as my athletic career went, but, all this, all the run, we've, we've tried to keep that under control and have done a pretty good job of that. Um, but I know a lot of families really are on the go and, and this has just set the pause button. And I think long-term there's, there, there's just something special about sitting down at the table with your mom and dad with no TV on, no, not getting home at midnight from some long distance trip or something and just spending time together. So it's been, it, it's been good for us. Now, obviously, you know, we, people not working and providing is, is, you know, starting to get uh, tough for a lot of families. So um, how long have you been back doing the, the farming full time? I know you were doing coaching for a while. How, how long have you been back at this? I'm going to guess, gosh, I'm going to guess about eight to 10 years in there. I'm not even sure I was, I was the head coach at Iowa Wesleyan University in Mount Pleasant, Iowa. And I was helping my dad at the same time you know, trying to balance that. And then when Iowa Wesleyan went from um, NAIA to Division III, uh, lost some scholarships, and, and their recruiting on the road came and, you know, took a lot more time, then I just decided not to do that and, and have been doing this full time. And then the uh, television uh, opportunities opened up as well. And so that's, that's just probably the last eight to ten years with this transition. How did the, I was wondering, I don't know if I've ever asked you this, how did the TV gig come about? Did you send out like audition tape? Did somebody know of your, uh, your ability to break, analyze things? You do a great job out of it, by the way, but it, it just seems like you're a natural. I really appreciate that. I, I, I try, you know, I, I work hard at it. I want to put together a good product for the viewers and uh, especially the kids who are playing, you know, try to build them up and, and entertain. But when I, when I first got out of college, I actually worked a year during the college basketball season for uh, KGAN Channel 2 out of Cedar Rapids. And I worked with Andy Garman, 
who's had, you know, had a successful career in television out of, out of Des Moines, who has changed professions in the last year. And then I also work with Chris Miller, who's the voice of the Washington Wizards um, and has done a lot of NBA basketball and had a very successful career. So the three of us um, worked together for a year, maybe a year and a half. And then here, when I got done with the basketball, I went to the Big Ten tournament and ran into Dave Rebson, who is the face of the Big Ten uh, network. And uh, he had done some work in the Quad Cities when he was cutting his teeth and actually covered Iowa basketball for a few years. So I had, I had met him through that. Um, I, I gave him a tape, and he looked it over and sent it up the line, and, and the rest is history. So he's, uh, he's the one who opened the door for me. Yeah, so networking, I guess the same as uh, we all do in life to try to, you know, better our standing in terms of uh, our occupations. Um, what, do you, what do you enjoy most? What are some of the things you enjoy most about that, that job, that doing, being able to do that and still being involved in the game? I guess before I answer that question, I, I did leave out Scott Sable at Channel 9. Um, the, year, the year before I started with the Big Ten Network, he – allowed me to work with him and cover the Iowa basketball team. So I, I don't know why that just slipped my mind, but I, I know he will listen to this, and I wanted him to be included as well. He, he gave me an opportunity to get, to get back in it. And John Campbell as well, as, as you know, those two guys are just true professionals. We had a lot of fun and even did the show together on Monday nights um, out of Cedar Rapids. But I, I just like being close to the game. I really enjoy going to the practices the night before the game or on game day with my notepad and, and studying the out-of-bounds plays and getting to know the coaches and, and hearing some of the insight into the, into the scouting reports. And then uh, it's, it's always great to learn about the kids and their families. And then all of a sudden, you know, you're, you're prepping and you're, you're studying and, and you're trying to put together a game plan and then the lights come on and, and it's, it's live television, those games – a lot of things happening quickly and you probably end up using about 15 to 20% of what you were hoping to use. Um, but it's, it's just good to be around the guys and the, and the game and just to be around that type of competition. How much, this would be interesting to, to hear your perspective on this. How much has the game changed since you played? It's changed quite a bit. And obviously the one that sticks out would be the three point line. Uh, we just, it, it was a weapon for us, but it wasn't like there were guys who just constantly shot it. And uh, I don't, you don't, didn't see very often on a fast break where a guy who maybe had an advantage to get a layup would just fan out to the wing and take a three-point jo- uh, shot because the analytics says that you should take that. Obviously, um, the physicality is totally different now. Um, I didn't ever think about fouling out when I played. And, and if I played the way that I played back then in today's game, then I wouldn't probably make it through a half. It was, it, there was just a lot more grabbing and holding a lot more physicality. And it's been really fascinating watching this, uh, the last dance is Michael Jordan documentary that everybody's been watching it. You know, Michael himself just took so many jump shots, so many 15, 17 footers. And that's just kind of how I grew up. We, we worked on our 15-footer. We The three-point line was there, but it just wasn't a part of the mentality that it is today. And then you saw just the Detroit Pistons and the New York Knicks and how Jordan had overcome that physicality and the 
the clotheslining and the tackling and all that. There, there were system really physical plays. So those are the two things, Rob, that probably stand out more than anything else. How much overall, Justin, do you um, study Big Ten? I mean, just to, to have knowledge. I mean, because it's, it's different than the NBA where, you know, you get a couple of new guys on maybe on each team each year. It's a constant turnover in college basketball, especially with the one-and-done rule and guys coming and going early. Um, how much time does it take to just kind of get to know teams and players? It, 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 that's a good question. It takes a little bit of time. Obviously, you want to see them play a couple times. But the transfer thing, that that's probably the third thing that's the most different from when I play. There are just so many guys coming and going and um, it, it takes a little while. I mean, you look at Nebraska team last year. You got Fred Hoiberg in there. I think they had 13 or 14 new faces. And so you can read about how they played at maybe the junior college level, but a lot of those numbers are skewed because everything's so much tougher at the Big Ten um, level. So, yeah, it takes a lot of study. And I'm, I'm a studier. I'm a videotape guy. I'm a film room guy. I'm, I just like it, and I try to – prepare myself that way. So I'm, I'm pouring into it probably as much as anybody, but it does take a little time to get to know these guys. Yeah. And that's not, it's called the big Ten, but there are 14 teams. So it's, there's a lot, that's a lot of programs to have to know. So I imagine there's probably a quite a bit of uh, intricacies and, and then coaching changes too. Then you start over with a new coach. You've got to learn their system and things like that. So imagine yeah. it's pretty detailed. Yeah, it's um, you know, I I spent a couple of days with Steve Peichel at Rutgers this year when I called a game out there, and and he was just, you know, he he said I'm still trying to convince people around this area that you know we're that this is the Big Ten, that this is not Big East country, and so just a lot of East Coast kids with Maryland as well coming into the Big Ten now, um, learning about their stories, their their recruiting history. There's just a lot more to it. And it's uh, not like what we grew up with where you've got your 10 teams and it's, you know, so regional, so Midwestern. There's just a lot more to it. Um, and it's, it's, uh, it's been good. It's been good. It's good to get to know these guys. And, and it's fun to uh, see so many kids still coming in the league who are really good players. I'd be interested to know your, uh, your older, older school. We'll call it an older school opinion instead of old school so we don't date ourselves. <laughs> um, just with, you you know, you touched on it, the, the graduate transfer rule. And, you know, there, there's talk now in the NCAA of, of getting, you know, at least one transfer for free where you're, you're automatically eligible. Um, thoughts on that? It's, it's almost it, – it's a lot different than when we grew up. I'm 52. You, I think you said you're 45 now, which right, makes right. even older. So um, just a lot – it's just the, the, the landscape is so much different than when we grew up. Yeah, I think first of all, I I can't I don't care for the fact that the rules are different for certain players. If you can transfer, everyone should be able to transfer, and if you can't if, if you can't have a handful of guys not have to sit out than the rest of the people do, regardless of the circumstances. So to me, that one's just easy. You transfer you sit out. Otherwise, everybody can transfer and and try it. Now, I, I guess as far as being able to transfer one time within the leagues, I think, Rob, that I, I've read 
that there are certain sports right now that already allow that. It's not super disruptive. So maybe we're going to leaning that direction. But as far as grad transfers and things like that, to be able to just transfer in right away and play, I'm not for that. It's interesting because the, one of the narratives that surrounds you is, is that you were in college for 20 years. Or right. exaggerate a little bit. <laughs> but, um, we're talking it was about- six. It was six years. Come on, get it right. And that's what I what I was thinking about before we started the interview. You know, when I was kind of prepping for it a little bit, I'm like, six years. There are a lot of guys these days that are in college for six years, whether it be for injuries or transfers or what other whatever other waivers have. It's interesting that you were kind of. Um, well, I'll say ahead of your time, but I mean, it was, you know, you, you were unique at the time and it's not unique anymore. Yeah. Um, you've kind of caught me off guard. I guess not off guard. You're making me think here. I'm, I haven't thought about this for a while, but it's like, so don't hold me to these responses, but it, it's almost, I, I think about my time. I played six years. Um, but it was obviously due to a catastrophic injury. But had I been healthy that fifth and sixth year, let's say, then then I then it wouldn't have been an equal playing field to have someone who's healthy, who's there as a six-year player going up against freshmen who are five and six years younger. So even though I got that opportunity to do it, I don't think as far as the competition goes, that that was the right thing. Um, I'm there, there's a piece of me that thinks, look, uh, give everybody five years of eligibility. And if they play all five years, that's great. And if they have to sit out for whatever, for a couple, that's fine. But from the time you graduate high school to you get five years, um, there's another piece of me that says, look, you know, you get four years, tough luck. If you get injured, tough luck, if you have some sort of hardship, um, that's, that's it. Um, because I'm always, I'm always about, look, it's a, it's a window there where you want the playing field to be equal and, and as competitive as, as possible, but you start getting five and six years apart age wise. I'm not a big fan of that. Um, and you know, that, that's, that's, I don't know if that's what you're looking for. I'm not, I'm not setting stone on any of those, but that's kind of what my thoughts are right now. Um, at noon when I've been up all night planting corn. <laughs> no, I mean, that's an interest. I mean, it's a really interesting perspective because, you know, you dealt with some severe injury things that, you know, it, it, you look at it from a perspective of, you know, it, it's, there's, there's one side of it that it's fair that, you know, if you're, if you lose time to injury that you shouldn't get that time back. But then I also, that perspective that you're talking about when you're talking about a 22, 23, maybe 24 year old, I think Dallas Clark was almost 24 by the time he was done at Iowa. I think Sean Green may be the same thing. Um, that's a big difference when you're talking phys- from a physical standpoint from 23 to 18. That's a big difference. Well, it's just huge. And I think all of your listeners would agree with that. I mean, you just think about when you're 17 or 18, uh, junior, senior year in high school, you graduate that summer. Then compared to the physicality and your mental toughness and your maturity five years later, the decision, all, all of those things. So I, 
I, I just think the transfer thing is out of hand. Um, I don't – the six-year thing, even though I was granted one, I would not allow that um, in most cases or any cases. Like I said, I'd have to think about that again. Uh, all the coming and going, even with the draft situation here, I'm not – I just don't – I think that system is broken. Um, there are so many kids who are leaving college who have no chance um, of – of playing in the NBA have no chance of even making the G league and, you know, maybe even not even ending up overseas. And I know a lot of these guys don't want to be in school, but then four or five years later, they're not equipped to, you know, provide and protect for their families. And they don't have that education that they, that that was a gift given to them that they didn't take advantage of. And obviously you make different decisions when you're 20 than compared to when you're 28 and, and the reality of life you know, is looking you in the eye. So all of those, all of those situations are unique. I know people fall on both sides of this. I always try to, in my life as a coach, as an analyst, as, you know, as a dad, as a, and anything we're all doing, I always try to, okay, what's best for the kid. And that usually puts things in the right perspective. And these are just really tough decisions because um, you just, the one thing I hate more than anything else is to see a kid get this opportunity to leave college without a degree or leave college with a degree that's pretty irrelevant to the realities facing him in, in a tough world that we live in. That's well put. Um, what, what back injury, right? Was that the, the main injury that you had? And do you still feel effects from the injuries you had in college today? Yeah, I, I really tore it up. It's a, it's a long and, and painful story figuratively and literally um and yes it's it's still it's something i have to live with the rest of my life but it was it was just a uh it's it was just a nightmare um you know it's hard to it's hard to comprehend it it's hard to step back into that but we from a physical physical standpoint it was just awful um from a team standpoint it was worse because um you know and I'm, got people who watch me play and and follow dr tom davis we had such a wonderful team back then. We were so set up for a tremendous three or four years. Chris Kingsbury, Andre Woolridge, Russ Millard, Kevin Skillett, Kenyon Murray, uh, Sam Oakey, Montier Glasper, uh, Kent McCausland, Ryan Bowen. We had uh, Ryan Lurzman sent me a, a text the other day, and just out of the blue, he was watching a. I think I think it was the Duke game. Uh, from the mid '90s when we played Grant Hill and Cherokee Parks, we played a couple, played them a couple times in a in a row. Uh, we lost to them by a few buckets. Chris Collins, who's a coach at Northwestern, uh, Ed and Carver Hawkeye, and then the next year we beat them up pretty badly over in Hawaii. And then the year after that, uh, we beat Ray Allen and UConn in the Alaska Shootout. I think Kingsbury had, I think he had 28 points in the second half against Ray Allen. And then we we were up maybe a bucket or two late against Duke again in the championship game of the Great Alaska Shootout, back when that was the tournament over Thanksgiving that everybody went to. And then we, we kind of choked that game. But it just gives you a little glimpse of we had the firepower and the toughness to take all the top teams in the country to the wire every time we played them. Um, but Ryan Luersman had, had watched that Duke game and – and he and I think he he told me or he brought up, I think Sam Olkey was a McDonald's All American. Chris Kingsbury was a McDonald's All American. 
Kenyon Murray was a McDonald's All-American. Andre Woolridge should have been in a McDonald's All-American. I think he outplayed Jason Kidd at some big tournament, uh, you know, late in his, the summer before his senior year, which really put him on the map. I was a hard worker. Ryan Bowen obviously played 10 years in the NBA. Um, I, I mean, so yeah, that, as I'm rambling on, but just wanted to kind of bring those names up for, for your listeners who followed Dr. Tom's era. It, yeah, that was the devastating part of it because I, he ran so many things through me and, and so many plays were run for me to, to get other guys open and, and things. And so that, that hurt more than anything else. It just, we come into those couple years and we're ready to go and, and we're driven to win a national championship and where I'm consumed with going to the final four and, and bringing back the glory days of Iowa basketball. And I could not overcome the injuries. I'd play a game, have to sit out two or three. Uh, and it just went like that for all of those years. And it was just devastating um, because I just, you know, was, we, we had such a great team and uh, Dr. Tom had done such a good job of putting those teams together. And it, I just, I just let everybody down. And so that was the, that was the mental warfare. Was there was it a specific incident, guess, that you injured it, or was it a, just a cumulative effect over time? I think the short answer is it was. I, I just I basically tweaked or or herniated a disc, and then I could never overcome that. I could never get it calmed down, and then it just snowballed from there to the point by the you know by the time I left, it was just you know instead of a small spot, it was a big area. If that's that's how I kind of describe it, but a lot of other tests and probing and prodding in between but it just it started out like that but then it just got out of control what type of therapy were you going through to just to make so you could you know you were talking about playing the game having to sit what what was the therapy like to get yourself to the point where you could get out there and help yeah these are bad memories buddy but um <laughs> I, I mean i just I, if i remember correctly it's starting to get a long time ago but i I had early on in the process, I had the, I had the strength, I had the core strength, but I just couldn't shake the pain. Um, so it wasn't like I had to do a ton of, it was more, you know, icing and getting shots and heat. It wasn't like, you know, a ton of physical therapy early on. Um, I just couldn't, we couldn't find, we couldn't get it trimmed up. We couldn't get the the nerve released or whatever. And th that's kind of how I remember it. And then after that, you go through all the other thing and you, you fly all over and you try to find the right, you know, surgeries and things like that, or somebody to do something. It, it just, it, it, it became a five year, four or five year, just odyssey to try to get it right. But that's, that's how it started. Just, just, you know, what's going on and this isn't right. And, um, you know, it, it that's that's what it, let's let's talk about something else man it's it's a bad memory let's just one, let's, i've got one more on this one then we'll move yeah, on yeah. <laughs> i think a lot of people would probably walk away you know in a situation like that why did you push through um i got the uh, the iowa dream the hawkeye dream in my in my heart at a young age to where i couldn't really shake it I would sit in the library and read about sports heroes and, and uh, you know, Niall Kinnick and Chuck Long and Ronnie Harmon and Billy Happel and Bobby Hansen and the list goes on and on. And I, 
I one time I read this quote from Dan Gable and I don't have it memorized. I used to, but for some reason it's not sharp like it used to be, but it was something about, you know, Dan Gable in the locker room after a workout, getting ready to shower and then thinking about, well, the other guy, my competitor is still on the mat. I better get back out there and do another session. So for some reason, I, I, I've told Coach Gable this before. I blame him for this this mess that I was in because I couldn't really shut it off. I was just kidding with him, you know. But it just I I just couldn't walk away from it. I probably should have, but it was just the you know the the death of a dream, so to speak. And I just couldn't. I wanted to. I knew at the time what was on the line and that it was such a golden opportunity, and that I was one of the only kids in the state in those couple of years to be able to wear the black and gold and just pursuit of all of that and wanting to win a national championship for the University of Iowa and 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 all those things that went into it um, just kept me going but you know physically speaking it probably wasn't the wisest thing to do and um, you just all athletes men and women are always torn when it comes to those knees and backs do you fight through it or do you walk away from it and everybody's in a real precarious situation it, it seems like you can overcome so many other in, injuries but these knees and backs man they really they can really make life tough for you i'm alex rodriguez and i'm jason kelly from bloomberg this is the deal each week you're here in conversation with business icons this show will explore deal making across sports media and entertainment that is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and, not as uh, simple you know, I, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many you know, more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. Let's go back to that, Jess. Let's go back to kind of growing up on the farm. And, uh, you know, a lot of kids dream what you dreamt, um, but aren't able to, to, to achieve that. Um, what was it like for you growing up and, and you know, have, doing that hard work of being on the farm, but then also working on your game and getting yourself ready to the point, you know, and building yourself up to the point where you could realize that? Well, we grew up on a farm about 40 miles south of Iowa City, and this was right when, you know, Hayden came in, and you know, if I remember correctly, there were decades of losing at the University of Iowa. That impacted the whole state. Obviously, without any pro teams, most of us in this area grow up wanting Iowa to do well. And so, you know, we're just like any other kids on the farm. We're, we're out causing mischief and bailing hay and driving tractors and, and uh, just living, living life outdoors. And, and it's very physical. Um, I, I had a brother who's two years older, so we were about the same size. So he was very competitive. I was very competitive. So that was kind of the life we lived. I remember, I, I still to this day can't believe it, in 1982, uh, we go to the Rose Bowl, Pasadena, you know, Hayden turns this thing around. And for, for some crazy reason, my folks get this wild hair to be like, we're going. Like, this has never happened. It may not happen, happen again. And we drive to Chicago. Uh, go out to the Rose Bowl, go to the game. It's a massacre. We get beat, but it didn't matter. It was like the pride in my heart as an eight-year-old wearing that black and gold. I had a hat. I had a coat. I had everything. And it was just, it meant so much to me and to my brother and to my mom and dad. I remember coming back through Chicago O'Hare. Some blizzard had hit. 
I think my dad spent half the day digging the car out with a scoop. It came back, and uh, I believe the, the snow was so bad that all the hogs in the open front building, the snow had piled up so much, they just walked right over the top of the fence. That's how much snow we got. So it was, it was just that at a, at a young age, that work ethic and that love of Iowa got in my, got in my heart. And I just uh, loved sports. And it was mostly early on from football. Um, and then I started to grow. Uh, I, I actually wrestled when I was in middle school. I played football. I liked playing basketball. My dad's favorite sport was baseball. But then I really started to grow. And I think I was maybe 6'3 in eighth grade and maybe 6'4 as a freshman and just hit that spurt. And um, just just started the physicality, the farmer's toughness, the love of the game. My mom was six one. She scored sixty nine points once in a high school game in the six player game. So we just we just love sports. Uh, my uncle Bruce Kittle, who is George Kittle's dad now with the the tight end for the Forty ers he was on Hayden's staff for a few years uh, when he married my aunt Jan. He would send us all the football posters: Chuck Long, Ronnie Harmon, the Huffords. Uh, Apple, Helverson, all those guys. So I just, I had a real taste of it. And then um, as I, I, my dad, one day we got this brochure about the five-star basketball camp in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, where all the good players went. I, my dad was like, look, let's, let's just see if he's got it. Let's just go, let's go out there and test ourselves. And, you know, I just grew up around Winfield playing, you know, not even enough guys for pickup games. And went out to that camp um, as an eighth grader. Gary Close, who was Dr. Tom's top assistant at the time, was out there, saw me play, you know, started getting letters, and, and the rest was history. So that's, that's uh, in a nutshell, the, the quick version how that all got in my heart and those opportunities came forward. I ended up being 6'8", and, uh, and I, I got to sign with the Hawkeyes, which was always my dream. That's interesting. You talked to the memories of Hayden and, you know, him helping through the farm crisis and the ANF and all that, that probably was, you probably were connected to all of that as well. Yeah. I look, I I'm assuming that, and I'm just guessing here, I'm assuming the farm crisis probably hit maybe right after the 82 Rose bowl, because I can't imagine that we went to the Rose bowl. If we were in the middle of the farm crisis, I would have to have somebody check on that. But it because it was so it was so terrible. I mean, it was. I've heard that forty to fifty percent of Iowa farmers um, had to file for bankruptcy or had to let go of a piece of land. I mean, it was really bad, and we barely survived it. Um, and you know, it, it was just tough on everybody in in farming community. And and I, you know, guys who are younger farmers today don't understand the pain and suffering that so many of those guys went through. So yeah, so that was that was really tough, and it it made you um, it, it just it just impacted every day of your life there for a while. And we were very fortunate to be able to battle through it, and it's been a great way of life for us ever since. And my dad and my uncle, um, you know, loved farming. My grandparents both farmed and just loved it. So it's been a good life for us, and it was good that we were fortunate to be able to survive that. But um, but yeah, Hayden Fry stepped up always, and. Hayden was so iconic and so genuine and he brought that Texas flair with him and he brought so much pride to the state of Iowa. And it was just, it was, it was a remarkable turnaround to not only just start winning, but to start dominating. 
And to go to the Rose Bowl in 82, I think we went in 85 again, the, the team. And then, you know, to bring in the coaches that he did, the legendary coaches, Snyder and Stoops and Ference and, and Alvarez and all those things, it was, it was just – it brought so much pride. I mean, you really can't put a number on what he did. I think most Iowa fans feel that way. But if you didn't grow up back then when it was bad – it's then you probably don't appreciate it as much as as some of the older guys do who, who who realized what what Hayden did and now obviously what Kirk's doing and and Dan Gable. But I I was we were big football fans before the basketball side of it. So I was always more familiar with the players on the football side of it than when B J Roy and Ed came in. You know that changed for me a little bit on basketball. But I I don't know I I can't say enough about Hayden. I know. I know you feel the same way, and it's just – it's hard to describe, isn't it, what it was like before he came in. So I, I hear your passion for Iowa. That's always been there. But when you're going through the recruiting process, you've got to at least look at who else, the other people that are going to court you a little bit here. What was that like? I mean, you had big schools. I mean, Michigan, uh, you, you had main coaches through the farm. Um, was there any – ever a part of your brain that was like, eh, maybe I won't go to Iowa? Or was it just pretty much just uh, a foregone conclusion? Yeah, so Dr. Tom back in the day was was pretty tough on recruits when it came to, let's see, if you weren't – he he wanted to challenge you when you were a, re, a recruit. Like he wanted you to come into Iowa with the right mindset that you're going to have to compete and you're going to, it's, this is going to be the toughest thing that you've ever been through. So he, he actually said to us once at a meeting, I'm going to say, I'm going to say junior year, maybe sophomore year in high school. Like he goes, I don't know if Jess is good enough to play here. He actually said that. Now he said, that my dad, <laughs> go ahead, go ahead. No, I was going to say, he said that to you and your family. Yes. Now, wow. Yeah, so times have changed a little, right? That's a little bit old school, like you were saying. Sure. Now, my dad, when my, when he said that, my dad loved it. My dad, being old school, took it as, okay, just you're going to have to work harder. You got to get better and get, you know, go earn it. So my mom was offended by it. And I was confused by it, right? So you can imagine... You can imagine that car ride home from Iowa City, right? So I took it sort of as, well, maybe he doesn't believe in me. Maybe he doesn't want me. And, well, come to find out three or four years later after I talked to three or four other guys on the team, he said the same thing to them. So it wasn't, it wasn't as deep as we probably thought it was, but it was just it was one of those ways he wanted to challenge me to get better. Now, I was at that point – getting ready to go to the five-star basketball camp again. Um, the Nike camp was coming up, and he just wanted me, I think, to realize how difficult this thing was going to be. Like, it's you're going to have to play harder and be tougher than you've ever been in your life. So going back to the recruiting part of it, so then I go to these camps, and I play really well. And, I, and I, I'm not afraid to attack some of the top names in the, in the, in the country. And so once, once I started doing that, well, then I started getting recruited by just a ton of schools, which was a very exciting time of my life. 
And so I thought, okay, since I'm not sure Coach Davis really wants me that badly, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take full advantage of this process and start going through the process. And so I remember Judd Heathcote from Michigan State was the first letter that I ever received. And Judd Heathcote would call Rob and leave these hilarious voice messages on, on our answer machines back in the day. The kids don't even know what answer machines are these days. But I'd get home from, you know, get home from a day and come home, the answer machine would turn on, and, and Judd Heathcote would say something like, Jess, I'm, I'm trying to get a hold of you, but I'm thoroughly convinced you no longer live his number. And then he'd call a few minutes later and be like, Jess, I tried one more time. I Now I am convinced that you don't live here. If you've moved, if you haven't moved, call me back. I mean, he was just always pranking and joking on the phone. I ended up m- visiting Michigan with Steve Fisher and the Fab Five, Brian Dutcher, who's the coach at San Diego now, um, was the assistant coach there for a long time, recruited me. That was an incredible experience to take a recruiting trip to Michigan during the Fab Five era. Jawan Howard was there. I spent a lot of time with him. We, uh, we laughed about that when I called one of his games this year at Michigan. I had a phenomenal visit to uh, Notre Dame when Fran McCaffrey was at Notre Dame. John McLeod was there. We had an encounter with Julia Roberts, which – uh, always made me the legendary recruit to come to Notre Dame. They're still talking about it today. You can ask Coach McCaffrey. <laughs> Before you move on, let's hear the story. Okay, so it, this thing gets changed over the years, but and Fran and I tell it differently. But so they at Notre Dame, they have a pep rally every Friday night. I believe they still do it on football Saturday, on football weekends. And this was the Michigan weekend, and and Michigan and Notre Dame, if you don't know, they hate each other on the field. I mean, there there was there's a true hatred there. So it makes for a great rivalry. But we are at this pep rally, and I if I remember the story goes, the place is packed. Now think about these high school pep rallies you're used to. They they've got the basketball arena there packed for a football Friday night pep rally. Someone says it may have been Keith Tower. Um, who was a player at the time, someone says, hey, Julia Roberts is sitting up there two rows from the top. And I said, you're kidding me. And they said, no, she's up there. And somebody said something like, why don't, why don't you go up and say hi to her? You know, just, you know, just how kids are goofing off. And I said, you know what, I think I'll do that. So they're like, they weren't being, they didn't think anybody would do it. So I go up there, I I sit, I say, introduce myself. She says, Hey, sit down. How? And so I, I sit down with Julia Roberts for five minutes. We talk just like you and I are talking now. You can imagine all these college kids, you know, down sitting in the front row, looking back, going, not believing what they're seeing. And I come back and I think I told them like, yeah, she gave me her number. And so we're going to talk some more. So I'm, you know, just totally exaggerating the whole conversation. Now, Fran tells it as if it was a setup, like they talked to her beforehand because they wanted me to come there. So they, 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 they set me up so that I would, you know, sign with them or something. So it's got all kinds of weird angles, but they still talk about it there. I don't mean to brag, but it is true that I have the most, impactful recruiting trip in the history of Notre Dame basketball yeah that's something I brag about for sure yeah I know it's I think at the time she was dating um an actor and they were filming in the area or something so she wasn't 
a, a Notre Dame alum or anything like that. But, but uh, someday I'll run into her and see if, if she remembers it for fun. But yeah, that, that was, that was great. I, I was recruited by Florida state. I never took that visit. Johnny Orr was wonderful uh, to, to be recruited by at Iowa state. He ended up coming down to Winfield to the school and, uh, and, and I was up there several times. I remember riding around campus in Johnny's red Cadillac with Fred Hoiberg and uh, Johnny Orr. And they, it was just, it was great. And uh, so, yeah, those were basically my core, my core trips and, and teams. But uh, I've told people this before, Steve Fisher and I were walking across Chrysler arena as I was getting ready to take the cab to the Detroit airport and fly back after my trip. And he, we, and I remember it. I remember it every time I walk in there now as an analyst and the lights were basically off. There might've just been a little light streaming in through, through a door and we're walking slow across the court. And he says, is there any way that you can go out on the court at Carver Hawkeye arena for a big 10 game wearing a different uniform? That, that was his question to me. And I thought my mouth said yes, because there I'm with Steve Fisher, but my heart said there's no way. And so I got home and I'm guessing a few days later I called Dr. Tom um, and I said, look, I'm, I'm ready to, I'm ready to go. And he was really happy and I was happy and um, it, it all kind of came together like that. I believe I went, I think I may have gone up there. Uh, a few days later and and rode around campus or went to I went to a couple classes with Chris Street and uh, I had some questions I, I think I had some final questions and Chris Street put my mind at ease and then I I called Dr. Tom it, it all kind of came together like that um, but I when I when I when I was so happy and so thankful to be able to put that uniform on and it was the right place for me and but it, it was fun to go on those trips. What was that freshman year like, Jess? You ought, you know, to, to have success, uh, you know, right away when you get on campus, and, and obviously you're you're the local kid, so there's there's inherent pressure there, but you you seem to be able to kind of, you know, not let that bother you. Yeah, so um, I went to Chris's funeral uh, my senior year in high school. Few, you know, obviously a few months before I reported to University of Iowa. Uh, Wade Looking Bill, who's a friend of mine to this day, who I just love and and cherish that guy. He, he, my mom and dad and I are at the funeral. Um, we're getting ready to leave the cemetery. The Iowa team is there. Obviously, everybody's devastated. Um, I know all your listeners remember all, how emotional that couple months was. But uh, Wade said, look, why don't you guys get on the bus with us? And he had us come on the bus, my mom and dad and I. And that was the day where I really be, became a part of the team. I'd played in the primetime league. I knew most of the guys. I'd competed uh, at the field house with with Kenyon and Ontario and I knew them but when he brought me on the bus right there and and with Streep and Tom Davis and Gary Close and James Winters and AC Earl that meant that meant the world to me so that took that really helped me transition just to know that the the that those guys cared about me that they had accepted me before I'd even been to campus and then obviously losing Chris Street I think people forget that we lost Kevin Smith who was our starting point guard as well, um, had some academic trouble, I believe, within a couple weeks of getting on campus. So I remember getting called into Tom, Dr. Tom's office with Chris Kingsbury, my other freshman teammate, and he said, look, you guys have to play heavy minutes right away. Like, if we're going to do anything this year, you guys have to be good right now. So it was a great meeting. 
uh, gave both of us a ton of confidence and brought a ton of joy because who doesn't want to hear that you're going to get minutes or get a chance early. But he just knew that we were very depleted and we had to have Chris and I step up. Now, did he think that we would both step up and be able to contribute right away? I'm not sure. But that was back in the Big Ten when everybody stayed in school and all the lottery picks were juniors and seniors around the league. So I'm not sure that he thought we could carry, play heavy minutes like we did, but he wanted to challenge us. And so that was kind of the mindset. We had a great couple months there working out. And then uh, I think uh, maybe Russ Millard got hurt a little bit. And here, you know, we open up the first game of the year and I'm starting for the Iowa Hawkeyes as a freshman. So it was, it was a, uh, it was bittersweet because obviously I knew I wouldn't be a starter if Chris Street was still there. And that was never, my, my intention was always just to be mentored by him. But when Kevin and Chris and Russ got hurt and everything kind of fell apart there, it was Kingsbury and I had to, to play a lot. And I'll tell you what, it was, it was baptism by fire. It, was, it felt like literally every night, and that's a total exaggeration, but it felt like every night I was playing against a first-round draft pick. It was, you know, on a Saturday night, it was Glenn Robinson from Purdue. Uh, then on Wednesday night, it was Jawan Howard and Jalen Rose from Michigan. And then you get one day off, and then you got to go play at Indiana, and you play against Allen Henderson. And then you go to Minnesota, and you play against Fashawn Leonard. And it just would never – and it was Lawrence Funderburk uh, at Ohio State. It just would never stop. And it seemed like all the top guys in the league were at the power forward position. So I just, I just would try to fight to the death and work out and work with Gary Close at night as much as I could and develop a skill set. And then later in the year – uh, James Winters rolled his ankle severely and, and it cost him maybe the last five or six games of the year. And then I stepped in for him and, and had a good run there as well. And we were just, you know, that, that's how it happened. And then uh, we had a meeting at the end of the year. They announced all these teams. I didn't even know what the meeting was about. Coach Davis says, you're the freshman of the year. And I couldn't believe it. And that's, that's how it went down. I've kept you a long time, Jeff, so I don't want to dig too much into your Iowa career. But I, I think the interesting contrast is kind of, you know, that freshman year where you were kind of the wide-eyed kid to, you know, your final season, which is also very memorable for a lot of reasons. What was that contrast like that last year where you were a veteran and people didn't expect a lot from you guys? You go to the Sweet 16, it's Dr. Tom's last year. There's so many different players to that story. Yeah, that, that was really crazy. I mean, just to think that I was there six years later, I, I couldn't even – I still to this day can hardly wrap my mind around it. I, I was – I think I was a junior in, or a sophomore or junior in college when we started recruiting Ricky Davis and Dean Oliver. And they, they would come into the locker room, and they might have been – seventh or eighth graders I'm I'm not sure but they were so young so it was it was like who are these young kids in the locker room all the time well it was Ricky and Dean well I had no there wasn't even a thought in my mind that I'd ever play with them I just they just seemed so young so then here you know 1999 um it's Dean Oliver's our starting point guard and Ricky Davis has already gone to the NBA that's just how surreal that gap was for me and you know coming into that season um, the expectations were pretty low. I didn't even think I was going to be granted my sixth year. Uh, Kent McCausland just led the nation in threes that year and had a phenomenal year. I mean, he hit so many 
big time shots for us, including our win at Kansas. Uh, Joey Range was a was a great freshman who stepped right in. J.R. Koch, um, Jake Jakes, Ryan Luersman. There were do as there were there were so many good players, but we didn't have a great team. But we just caught that magic and uh, sent Dr. Tom out on a high note. Ended up in the Sweet 16, and we were right in that game with uh, UConn. They ended up winning the national title that year. But we were it was we were right there, and we just missed a couple shots late. But it it was it was surreal. I don't I don't know how to describe it other than I was I was fortunate to be a part of it. The game that stands out for me was the one at Illinois. And I remember interviewing you after that game in their dungeon of a press room that they have down. I don't know if it's still – I haven't been there in a while. <laughs> we were outside of that soda machine and standing on the stairs, and you kind of were just kind of – I could see the, the satisfaction in your face because Iowa, Illinois back then was – and it seems like it's getting back to that now, which I love. But uh, – what do you remember about that game and just kind of some of those big wins you guys had that season? Was that the game where did I luckily like have a dunk in that game where my hand slipped off the rim and I landed on my back? Was that, was that that game? I also remember the student section chanting that Tom got fired. <laughs> Look, I mean. Guys going to the war when you were, I mean, it was. That orange crush, they were laying you guys. And the look on your faces when you walked off the court that day uh, and, and looked at that student section was uh, priceless. Yeah, look, it, I mean, there was such bad blood between Iowa and Illinois back then. And I'm glad there's some rivalry coming back into it. But, yeah, I mean, you, you have to give the orange crush student section so much credit. It's, it's, it pains me to say that. And I've told some of them that as an analyst. Like, you don't know how hard it is for me to compliment you guys, but the Orange Crush is, is, is at another level. I mean, they, they're organized, right? You've heard them. But, uh, yeah, we, we beat them that day. I think, I think that might have been my one or – I think I had one or two dunks that year because my back was so jacked up, but I couldn't – but something kind of overcame me on a fast break, and I, I think I rose up and squeaked one over, but then my, my feet slipped out and I landed on my back and I, there was a gasp and, like – and I, it just – I don't know. It didn't, it didn't hurt for some reason in that moment. Maybe it was the adrenaline of beating them, but yeah, there were some, there were some good battles that entire year. The, the one for me, the Kansas one sticks out to me. I think they'd won 60 plus games in a row and McCausland went wild on them. Uh, Dean Oliver, Oliver won us some games that year. So did Lurzman. but um, we, we just had a special year. It was a special time. And, um, and it, I, you know, Dr. Tom texted me the other night. He had watched some game uh, on on TV and just sent me a couple texts and just I, I just appreciated him so much and I loved playing for him. I think most of us did, and it was just a very fun brand of basketball to play. And Carver was always packed, and people just appreciated that up and down effort that we gave. And it was it was a real blessing to wear that uniform. I mean, I I would definitely do it again if I had the chance to. I know sometimes it's overstated, but the way – and I'll say this. I'll, 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 this will be commentary and opinion for me, the way I think Dr. Tom was let go unfairly. Um, how much of that galvanized you guys? I know sometimes that's overplayed, but it, you talk about how much you guys loved him. How much did that help you guys that season? Or is it hard that's, to quantify that? It's so hard to quantify. That's a great question. And those are those are tough, tough those are such tough decisions. Um, 
I've never really talked to Dr. Tom deeply about it. Um, I, I don't really even know the whole story of everything that went down. I do know when you're that age, you kind of rally around things like that. Um, you, you want, you want to do well for your coach. I, I think a lot of us, um, you, you want to leave a good legacy as well as a player if you can. So you, a lot of the winning and trying to make it deep in the, in the tournaments for your teammates, it's for yourself, it's for your families as well. But I've, I've always, you know, I'm, I'm friends with Bob Bowlesby as well, and I've never really talked in detail with him about it either. But I know that, I know that Bob liked and respected Tom Davis a lot. And I know it's just a business decision. He just thought that a change needed to be made. And, uh, and I always look at it like this, and I'm, that Tom Davis ended up going to Drake, which gave Keno the opportunity, his son, to become the coach of Drake and now have a successful coaching career. So I always look at those things as God is sovereign. And what happened, happened, and I think everybody has made the most out of it. But I do know a lot of Hawkeye fans were not happy with how any of that went down, and, uh, and I don't blame them. And, and, and I wasn't either, but I, I don't, I just don't have any detail or insight into it from from anybody involved to really share with your listeners. What, what, uh, what really went down? I just don't have any of that. What would you tell people about Dr. Tom that, they, that maybe they don't know? I've told Dr. Tom and I've told people before that I look forward to going to practice every single day of my life. Um, I remember it's talking to Clayton Corver, who's Kyle Corver's younger brother from Pella. Kyle played at Creighton and, uh, and is in the NBA still. But Clayton played for Dr. Dom at Drake uh, during the Drake years. And Clayton, out of the blue one day at one of my camps, came up to me and said, you know, the thing I love about Dr. Tom is I look forward to going to practice every single day. So he said the same thing. So Dr. Tom made the experience a great experience. Um, he wasn't a guy who would swear at you. He wasn't a manipulator. Um, he wasn't emotionally unhinged. And I, and you, you hear that and you say, well, is, uh, you know, isn't that normal? And, and, you know, a lot of times, especially back then, it, it wasn't normal to have a calm, wise, uh, emotionally stable coach. I mean, he just, you, you just felt comfortable do, working on your craft around him. He was a pioneer with the pressure defense. I mean, you can look back, maybe John Wooden, Digger Phelps, I think, took John Wooden's press, full-court press, to another level. And then Patino, Rick Patino, and Dr. Tom Davis, those, they kind of modernized it. So he, that pressure defense all up and down the court was so fun to play. Um, the substitution patterns that he had were so fun. And he's – to compliment him as well, he was more – Dr. Tom to me has always been more of a businessman who coached basketball. And it's, so he was always trying to get you to think outside of basketball. Um, what are you going to do when you graduate? I remember he, I wrote a book, a little motivational book when I graduated and it was, he kept encouraging me to do it. I would sit down and talk to him about it. He was a, you know, wall street journal type of guy, an investor, um, uh, just he was really smart. He has his PhD, and yet he just had a love for the game of basketball, and he and he stuck with the plan. So I, I don't know. I'm I I just don't have enough good things to say about him. He had a great sense of humor. He believed in us, and he was a great competitor. He he would never show you up. He would light you up in the locker room, but he would never show you up on the sideline. The things that I just appreciated. 
So I, uh, I always felt bad about my injury because, you know, selfishly speaking, I always felt like had my injury not happened, that his legacy would be different in college basketball. Um, and I've always felt bad about that 1987 loss UNLV when he had a chance to go to the Final Four when we were up so big at halftime and had probably the best team in the country that year with Roy, BJ, and Ed, and Gamble, and Lowhouse, and Jepson, and all those NBA guys. So I just, I, I don't think it bothers him that much, but as an analyst and someone who studies the game now, I just wish that he would have been able to get to a couple Final Fours so he could have kind of that national legacy that he deserved because he was really a phenomenal coach and an even better person. So humble. I remember um, press conferences, and he's, I think he's the only one that I remember in my long time of covering Iowa athletics. He would bring you guys in with him as players and sit side by side with him at those press conferences, and we'd ask him a question, and then he'd turn to Jason Bauer or you or Louie and just ask you guys how you would answer the question that was just asked of him. And that humility, um, you know, at a time when, you know, Dick Vitale was pumping up coaches and giving them nicknames, the general and all this other stuff. He always, Tom Davis always seemed uncomfortable taking credit or, or being the guy in the spotlight. He wanted you guys to have. Yeah, that's, that's a great point. I, I forgot about that. That was, that was part of his humility. Um, also part of his, educating it was he was a teacher and so he knew the importance of being able to speak publicly um he bringing us up there those were pressure moments to have to answer questions from you guys uh, at a young age to have to think on your feet that was part of the education process um we lost games at Iowa because he made guys not play because they missed a couple classes or study halls that they should have gone to they were eligible as far as the NCAA went, as far as the University of Iowa went, but he wouldn't put up with it. And so that we, we lost games because of that. And so he, he came from that old school mentality to where it's about more than winning and it's about preparing for life. And he wanted the spotlight to be on us. And it, it was, it was just great. Um, like I said, what the guy that you saw in those press conferences was the guy that we played for. There was nothing phony about him. Um, he's a brilliant guy. He's he's well read on on so many things, um, and he just cared a, a ton about his players. And he wasn't. I think you're right, Rob. He wasn't. Uh, you'd have to ask him this, but he wasn't really a part of that coaching fraternity. He wasn't. He was kind of his own man, and. Uh, and and I th and that was a good thing. He lived a pretty normal life. He poured a lot of his energy into Keno, and he was just. Uh, I'm so glad Bump, you know, found Dr. Tom and brought him to Iowa, and 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 he was just a class act all the way around. So let's wrap up with this, Jess. Um, you seem happy. You seem happy with what you're doing, uh, farming, being able to stay involved in the game. Is this kind of where you see yourself continuing on is this is this the path for you are there other things out there that you want to challenge yourself with um what what's the future what's what's 10 years now look like for Jess Settles 10 years from now I should say I have no idea that that's a great question I mean I I'm I'm content with what I'm doing I enjoy uh the state of Iowa the people of Iowa I enjoy uh the agriculture and farming and starting the tractor up in the morning and, and watching the crops grow. 
I enjoy that. It'll be interesting to see where the uh, where the college basketball analyst stuff leads. Hopefully, that will open up more opportunities, and and I'll be able to take on a bigger load with that. You just you never know. It's a very competitive environment. Um, I've got three three daughters, a fifteen year old, eleven and nine, and they they like volleyball and they like music, and so I'm just at that stage, like so many of your listeners with young kids. It'll a lot of the future will depend on them and and what they do and where they go. But I, you know, I just, I was very fortunate to wear the black and gold and be able to have that platform. And I'm very thankful to be involved in as an analyst as well and live in the great state of Iowa. And, and uh, 10 years from now, buddy, I don't know. It'll pro- I'll probably be, we'll probably have this conversation. It'll probably be about the same as it is today. <laughs> I'll tell you what, in 10 years, we'll do another podcast and we'll hit on all the stories we didn't have time to hit on today. How's that sound? Uh, that was great. I, I enjoyed being on, and uh, and I appreciate you, and I hope the listeners had a good good time. Thanks a lot, Jess, and, and thanks for listening, everybody, and uh, we'll talk to you soon. Jess, thanks. Have a great day, man.